We've been doing a uh, sermon series where we do a hymn every week. And uh, Pastor Shane likes to teach around it. So this week's hymn. Here we go. Jake. <clears throat> We're going to transition a little bit, allow Jake to, to get off the stage. Uh, in doing so, I want to remind you of uh, one other announcement. Beginning at the end of August and going into the fall, um, we start our small groups back. And so if you would like to participate in the small group, it's about a 10 or 12 week study. We're going to use the Max Licato's book. Uh, some of you were in studies last fall. And we looked at the Gospel of Luke. Here we're going to do the companion piece, and we're going to look at the book of Acts. So if you would like to participate in a small group, or you'd maybe uh, even want to lead a small group like a facilitator, the book sort of takes care of itself, so you don't necessarily have to teach as much as just to, to, to be sort of the leader. Uh, you know, please contact me or John or somebody, uh, but there's some time. But I do want to remind you again about um, small groups coming up end of August, beginning in September, and that will run through about 10 weeks or so. Um, scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to grab one of the Bibles that are close to you, um, we're going to be on page 986. So 1 Thessalonians near the very end of the New Testament. This is one of Paul's letters uh, to different churches. Here would be the church of Thessalonica. Um, if you think about Athens, uh, Greece, just go straight north, all the way up like you're about to go into uh, about to go into to Turkey, and you get an idea where Thessalonica is located. We're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. That's going to be our passage. So invite you, you can either follow along in the passage, your own Bible, or up on the screen. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly uh, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, and you could say brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, you know what kind of men, uh, you know what kind of men we, we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we move now uh, with the same spirit of worship, but what we want to do now, instead of engaging through song, we want to engage the scripture lesson in a way that uh, what comes is your gospel, and then at the same time, that buries itself deep down into the depths of our souls and begins a work of transformation, a harvest. Uh, sometimes that harvest is tenfold, twenty, forty, even a hundred. And all of that, O oh God, we want that to take place in our life and in the world. And so we pray for that, and we ask it now in your name. Amen. So Jake mentioned that we're in the middle of a sermon series, actually coming to the very end, that's dealing with these different hymns, some of these hymns that are uh, famous hymns, um, and then I'm focusing in on one verse that might be the, the obscure verse, or the verse that most people don't know about the hymn. Uh, but in this week, the hymn, at least it's one of my favorite hymns, is Come Thou Almighty King. And it's a Trinitarian-type hymn uh, so that each stanza focuses in on a different aspect of God. First, first stanza, God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. Um, and, and the history of the hymn, most people, at least early on, attributed the hymn to Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley is John's brother that was basically musically talented. John was the logical thinker. Charles was the one that engaged music and the arts. And, uh, and so for the most part, throughout this, the history of this hymn, people attributed this to, as to, to Charles Wesley, mainly because it showed up in the first Methodist hymnal. 1755, this hymn was listed. And so people thought, okay, Charles Wesley was the writer of this. All these other hymns are published by him. Then surely he's the, he, he's the writer of this hymn as well. That's not the case. We really don't know who wrote this hymn. Uh, there's actually a little bit of a legend that's associated with this hymn. Because if you know anything about British history around 17, the mid-1700s, is you have this, uh, they're, they're sort of warring and fighting between those that are loyal to the king, or to the monarchy, and those that are not. And so one of the legends around this hymn is because the, the rhythm of, or, or the, the melody of the hymn uh, follows something similar to the national hymn, God Save the King. And so people thought that people wrote this hymn as some level of protest that not the actual physical king of, of Britain or England, but actually, you know, God the king. We don't know if that's true or not, but that's a legend that most people sort of kind of uh, subscribe to. I like this hymn mainly because of verse 3. And if you look on the screen, you'll see verse 3. Verse 3 is, is this. Come, holy comforter, thy sacred witness bear in this glad hour. Thou who almighty art, now rule in every heart and never from us depart, spirit of power. What I like about this hymn is because it highlights the work of God's spirit in the life of the person. And if you take the basic tenets of faith, that is Christian faith, Christ died, God raised, and then the spirit, God's spirit, imputes and imparts what Christ did into the life of the person. And so in layman's terms, the, the Holy Spirit is the inner worker uh, or the muscle behind transformation, how a person might change. And without the Spirit's work, there really is no lasting change. There can be a little bit of change, but no lasting change where the nature of a person changes can happen 
without God's Spirit. But because of it, lives can change. And, and, and the truth is, that's why I continue to be a minister, not just in my own life, but to watch it in the life of other people, how God works in the life of a person so that their nature changes little by little into something that bears a reflection of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take how that works in the life of a person, and I want to break it down into broad strokes. How, how through the work of the Spirit, God brings about a change in the life of the person. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer. You need to know that although the broad strokes are the same for every person, there'll be a level of degree. There'll be a level of variety of, of how, those, how those broad strokes work in, in the life of a person. And I, I would argue that 1 Thessalonians, this chapter, this text that we're using this morning, is one of the best examples in the Bible where Paul is describing this work in the life of the Thessalonians. And, and of course, it would also be in our life as well. So let's look at these broad strokes. And the first one is this. Before there's any change in the life of a person, the gospel comes. And what I wish would happen, or at least that I could do or any preacher could do, is to break down with great detail how the gospel comes in every person. But the truth is, we can't, other than we know that the gospel comes. And, and sometimes it involves, the, say, a spoken word. Maybe it's a sermon. Maybe it's a conversation between two people or a group of people. So sometimes the way the gospel comes is through what somebody hears, through the word. For someone else, it might be through another person's actions. Now, we have uh, a number of youth and some young adults that are going on a mission trip as soon as this service is, is over, over with. Actually, the way we're going to close this service is, is pray for them before they leave. And, and so what they're going to do is they're going to drive to Knoxville, and for the rest of this week, they are going to be performing works. They're going to, be, they're going to have some action behind their life in hopes that that work or that action becomes a witness. And so sometimes the gospel comes through a person's action. Sometimes it's, it's not through the spoken word. It's not through a person's action. Sometimes it's through the reflections that a person might have when it's just that person and the world around them. I've heard multiple testimonies, and some of them have been from you, about what you think and feel when you're at the beach or in the mountains. You, you start to think about things that are maybe about the cosmos, cosmodology. I mean, you know, there, there's so many ways that we think about something that's larger than us when we get outside of our normal routine. And for some people, that becomes the, the means by which the gospel comes. And so it comes in, in, in different ways, but it's God working behind all that so that a person, the, the gospel at least, is presented in the life of the person. And this is what Paul described in the passage. Now, it might take somebody's, you know, we might participate in what God does, but the origin of the gospel doesn't sit with us. It sits with God. The way Paul described it in the passage is he used a, a, a unique Greek word. It's the word agape. Now, some of you have probably heard that if you've been a part of the church for a little bit of time. There are about five or six words in, in the Greek language to describe love. 
one of those words is agape. And agape is a unique word that is used to describe love because it's a self-giving love. It's a love that, that doesn't seek to possess. It's a love that doesn't want to manage or control. Maybe the, the best analogy for us is to think about a parent's love for a child, parental love. Where, where a parent might give of themselves over and over and over and over, knowing full well that it might not be reciprocated. But they just give out of who they are, out of their sense of self, so that the receiver of that love would grow. The receiver of that love would mature. The receiver of that love might learn to, to become something more than they are before the love is given. That's agape love. And the word that is used to describe in the passage God's work is that love. That God gives of himself to the, to the Thessalonians, I would argue gives of himself to us, so that what happens is we change. God's self-giving this way. But Paul reminds us that this comes with power. Conviction. Sometimes even what we would call deep conviction. And sometimes that deep conviction is to edify and increase something. Sometimes the gospel comes and, 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 and this agape love brings about co conviction because it exposes things inside of us that need to change. But it's God the one who is doing that. Might take an action of another person, might take the words of another person, might take what we would call the creation around, and that becomes the means, but the one that is using the means is God self-giving for the other person to receive so that what happens, then they change, or at least they can change. One of the things, uh, Brooke and I, years ago, we were out in San Francisco, and if you've ever been to San Francisco, one of the things you have to do if you're, is to watch the fog roll in around the Golden Gate. It's really cool looking. And so you can stand on one side and you overlook and you see, you know, the Golden Gate and you can see the fog rolling in. And if you just wait, uh, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes, it's crystal blue, sun shining, everything's great. 45 minutes later is the fog is here. And that's often the way we describe something like uh, the gospel. It just rolls in. And God is the, is the origin behind it all. So before there is any change in the life of a person, God acts through the gospel. Now, after God acts, then we move into what happens is that, and this would maybe say the second broad stroke, is that what is given by God, the gospel, the person receives or welcomes. You know, when something is offered to you, you either, I mean, you have, you have two options. You either, you either reject it or you receive it. And so when we talk about receiving what God gives, we're talking about you take it in, you grab hold of it, you say yes, you agree to, and, and something on the outside, like that fog moving in, becomes part on the inside. And the moment that happens, that begins a twofold work. And, and the first one, or at least the first fold of this, this, this act of receiving, is the status of a person changes. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you'll, 
you'll read the word often in the New Testament, the word justification. This is that work. And it's something that God does. If you think of someone who's on the outside now becomes uh, someone who's on the inside, it's legal in its definition, justification. So you think that, say, say, sinner becomes saint, guilty becomes innocent. It's all instantaneous. But, but it, that first fold work of God, when a person receives the gospel, is, is the status of that person changes according to God. And it's a, it's a one and done, instantaneous, like that. And at the same time, there's another aspect, second fold, of what happens when a person receives or welcomes the gospel. It, it begins what we call sanctification. So just as justification is something that God does, that the status of a person changes, it's instantaneous, sanctification involves God and the person working together. And it's process-oriented, which means it takes time where someone works with God's Spirit to bring about a level of change on the inside that then becomes also on the outside. And so the goal of God's work here is that the person grows into something currently they are not, other than the fact that God sees what they can become. One of the things I like to do, I, I love doing this with uh, my, my children, uh, my nephew, he, he's here, is to go back and look at their baby pictures. And you see like maybe the minute one, you know, after they've been born or, you know, maybe, you know, the first day. And then you look at, you know, year number one or year number two or year number four or five. And you, just, you watch them grow from, from, from birth into whoever they are at, that, at, this, at this particular time. I mean, I, I like doing that for my children. I've been around this church for about 12 years. I like doing it for your children to see, you know, when someone might show a picture, 